episode 235, The Right Providers Will Maximize Healthcare Value. So, who are the right providers? Today, I speak with Suzanne Clough, MD, CMO at Armada Health. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Here's a vital question. How do you make sure that the physicians your employees or members are seeing are high quality in a given area of focus? Getting the right doctor matters when you consider that something like 70% of back surgeries are unnecessary and medical errors are the third leading cause of death in this country. And also because, as Suzanne Del Banco put it in episode 224, if a payer simply cuts out the bottom performing 10% of practices, the returns are outsized from a cost and quality perspective. The challenge is how to actually accomplish this, how to measure quality in a sea of dirty data and noise and whatever the opposite of interoperability and aggregated data sets is. With the confounding factor also that outcomes are rarely, if ever, included in data sets, especially when you consider that the outcomes that matter to patients are really the outcomes that count. Today, I speak with Suzanne Clough, MD. In a former life, Suzanne was a co-founder of WellDoc, the first FDA-approved digital health platform, and also featured on episode 102 of this podcast. Now, Suzanne is the chief medical officer over at Armada Health, a company that aims to become a GPS for healthcare, helping to get patients to the right doctor quicker. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Dr. Suzanne Clough. Thanks, Stacey. It's nice to be here. Why is it so important that a patient find, in quotes, the right provider? You know, I think people are shocked when I give them the stats that on an annual basis in the United States, over a third of people receive the wrong diagnosis, 50% of people receive the wrong treatment, and this can be surgery as well, and medical error is the third leading cause of death. So it's important, you know, who you put your care, whose hands you put your care into really matters. And I just don't think it's talked about enough that there really is this quality spectrum that exists with health systems, with physicians, just has seemed a very taboo subject until the last couple of years. But I think, you know, the short answer is people's lives may depend on it. Is this something that there's simply higher quality physicians or health systems than others? Or is it a matter of you've got specialists or individual practitioners who are really good and are up on one thing, but maybe aren't good at another? So it it sort of it depends what the subject matter is or or what the diagnosis or what the problem is, is going to depend on who is the higher quality. I think the answer is a bit of both. I mean, first of all, there's this really strange kind of legacy culture in the world today that, you know, doctors are somehow superhuman, that they know everything and they don't make mistakes. It's just bizarre, right? Like in any other industry or company, you think about it, you know, you have high performers and lower performers. We do performance reviews because we know that we as humans have 
differences in, in what we're good at and what we're not, but we don't look at physicians and health systems like that. So I think the first thing is that we don't recognize that there can be a quality and a proficiency difference, clinical knowledge difference among physicians, and there can be a quality difference among health systems. That's the first thing. The other piece that you mentioned is this idea of subspecialization, and we are a very subspecialized nation of healthcare providers today that, you know, when you look at ophthalmology, I always love this example because it's the eye, right? How complicated can that be? And I, no disrespect to my ophthalmologist, it's very complicated, but, you know, to the layperson, you think this tiny little eyeball, but there's 10 subspecialties. Yeah, I totally get it. What does quality mean? Like we've been using the word quality quite a bit. What is your definition? I mean, I think quality has to be looked at holistically, right? That for me, our quality framework here at Armada Health is that we want care that's good, meaning it can or will produce good clinical outcomes, care that's appropriate just because someone's technically proficient in back surgery doesn't need you actually need it or should be receiving it. And then care that's patient-centered is the healthcare provider, someone who is a good communicator and can connect to you at a human level. And if you think about it with surgical conditions versus chronic diseases, for example, with chronic disease, it really becomes what kind of relationship and partnership can I establish with this specialist? Because I may be here with him or her for the long haul. And so quality at that point really does become not just about their clinical acumen and can they follow the evidence-based guidelines, but can they connect to that patient and vice versa so that shared decision-making can happen over time. And that's one of the things we do here. We were out there scraping all the websites, getting our own patient-reported experience measures because we really want to understand who is that physician on a human personality level. We incorporate that into our algorithms when we're discussing quality. I am distilling what you just said down into three points. So let me know if I got this straight. Quality is maybe the intersection of clinical acumen, but then also the ability to form a relationship, to connect, to facilitate shared decision-making. But then the other bit is, if you're talking about acumen, that might be acumen in an episode of care. You know, in other words, how good is somebody at administering the treatment, the surgery, or figuring out what the protocol should be? But then the other piece is, determining whether it's the right thing to do to even go there. Correct. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really important, right? This whole idea of appropriateness, back surgeries, probably 70% of them just shouldn't occur, either because they're not clinically indicated or someone has not first tried conservative medical therapy. But that's a big deal. When you think about that type of procedure, the cost of it, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, and then what could possibly happen to the patient having it, that either they get an infection or other complications. There's a lot to think about there with this whole concept of appropriateness of care. And we haven't really been looking at it as a country as, as much as I think we should have lately. How do you go about determining what is or is not appropriate? I don't think that's an easy answer because, again, we like to look at things at Armada Health at the condition level, right? So anybody facing a catastrophic diagnosis, sometimes appropriateness is really just 
about what's coming from the patient angle, what's right for him or her, what type of quality of life do they want? So what should we be recommending that's appropriate to fill their psychosocial or emotional or whatever needs, right? So there's appropriateness at that level. And it just makes me think that so often we talk about it only one way, right? Is the physician deciding on the appropriate path of care. That is an important piece, but this other piece I'm just discussing is what's appropriate from the patient's perspective. And we just don't do a great job with that, I think. Give me an example of that, something that might be appropriate from a physician standpoint, but is just not the thing to do if you are thinking about it from the standpoint of the patient. There's a group out in California, as an example, they went back into the literature and gathered hundreds of thousands of data points from patient-reported outcome measures for prostate cancer. Long story short, what they did with all this data is they assimilated it. They created this questionnaire that said, tell me, patient, what's important to you with this advanced prostate cancer? Is impotence or incontinence, if you're going to experience those but live six months longer, is that an okay trade-off? Or if we can get you a year, but a couple weeks of that, you're going to be in a hospital stay. Just it went on to all these different permutations of personal preferences. So a doctor may think, hey, you should have this surgery and this radiation treatment because the studies have shown, you know, it will add six months to your life expectancy without taking into consideration that patient's personal preferences on how they want to spend what could be the last six to 18 months of their lives, that would not be an appropriate treatment for that patient. Even though by the books and the evidence-based guidelines, when just looking at treatment equals life expectancy, it may be appropriate. One aspect, maybe there's more, is considering the circumstances of the patient, their psychosocial situation. Is there another aspect here? Yeah, but, and I also think it's going back to the other side, is the physician performing appropriate care? So I love this example of a, we have an advisor on Amarta Health Clinical Advisory Board who's a Eurogyne at a Centers of Excellence. And, you know, she'll say, look, I see people who walk into my office, these women who technically the treatment they had was not malpractice, but they certainly shouldn't have been cut open stem to stern, you know, when minimally invasive surgery was the way to go, just from even a short-term clinical outcomes to longer term to healing, et cetera. So we see sometimes that not all physicians are trained in kind of the latest and greatest or keep up with the latest and greatest technological approaches that can manifest itself in things like someone continues to perform these more open, more invasive surgeries rather than the newer, you know, minimally invasive that have become more of gold standard. So I think as technology changes and the guidelines change, what we're seeing is that oftentimes physicians aren't keeping up with that. And to me, that lands in this area of inappropriate care. But I want to stop there too and also say that a lot of times it's because physicians could use more support in understanding when they're living in that land of inappropriate care, that they're not trying to intentionally not follow the proper guidelines. It's oftentimes they lack the data and insight that the guidelines have changed. And this is 
kind of where I want to go if we start talking about transparency, that this idea that this data exists out there, that we could be providing physicians back information in a really positive way that says, hey, look, you know, compared to your peers, you're performing 30% more of these procedures most likely doesn't have to happen for this type of case. Let's talk about it or let's give you a learning opportunity for that. It's you know exactly what Marty McCary does through his Practicing Wisely solution. But my point is that sometimes we don't do enough to be able to provide the feedback to physicians. Yeah, I love the Practicing Wisely and the idea that it leads to all kinds of not necessarily the outcomes that you're looking for. If you try to legislate a procedure at a time or a patient at a time, because patients are individuals and require what might be exactly like we're talking about now, what might be good and appropriate for one might not be good and appropriate for another. So if you look at it at the patient level, you get into all kinds of difficulties. But if you look at things from an overall practice pattern standpoint, then you can start to analyze exactly like you just said. If a patient is still 90% of the time doing open surgeries when everybody else is doing it 10% of the time, like that'll tell you something. It does. And it doesn't have to be punitive, right? I mean, it's so crazy to me that every other industry on the planet, well, most of them, you know, when you go to work, you get some sort of performance review. You know, let's look at what's happened. Let's set goals. Let's figure out where we're going to go forward. It's never been there in medicine. We may know how an individual is doing because we can pull up the electronic health record, but that's a very myopic view. And it's one that puts physicians at a disadvantage because I would say most people I know who are doctors enter the the field because they care and they want to make a difference, but they're human, they're people. And I think we just need to do a better job at providing that feedback and insight and helping them grow as professionals and individuals if we want to start really tackling this whole quality issue. Okay, so I've got two things in the appropriate bucket. One is appropriateness relative to the patient themselves, you know, they're psychosocial. Another one is how often maybe, let's just call it old in quotes, treatment is being used as opposed to what would be considered by their peers to be the gold standard. Is there anything else on that list? I would just also say, you know, going back to that back pain or other preference-based conditions like early stage prostate cancer, where the data is pretty convincing that a non-surgical approach is as equal to or better than a surgical approach. So this is where you're kind of landing in that zone of, you kind of know better, doc, you know, don't go there, but it happens anyway. I would say that's probably the smallest bucket, but it's still one that exists. From a patient point of view, getting to the right physician, as we were talking about at the beginning, you know, it could be a difference between life or death or at a minimum, the difference between a harrowing period of time and, you know, not having to go through that. Do payers care about this? So would an insurance carrier or an employer? I mean, it's so hugely important, this idea of getting the patient to the right doctor as quick as possible. The impact to the financial bottom line is so big. And what I 
have just found to be absolutely fascinating is how little attention or awareness that employers and payers have been paying attention to it. They just really haven't. And when I show them the slides and the data on how often the wrong treatment plan is being prescribed, like I said before, 50% or over 30% of people are getting the wrong diagnosis. And I share these case studies of people we've helped, of folks who have bounced from doctor to doctor receiving expensive treatments they shouldn't have or had a surgery, a $60,000 surgery they shouldn't have or didn't receive the surgery they should have had and missed months of work because of pain or had to go into disability. It's kind of an eye-opener to them. And again, I think it goes back to at least one of the factors is that there's still, again, this legacy paradigm that there isn't a whole lot of quality discrepancy among doctors, and there is. And I think that once people can wrap their brain around it, then it becomes a no-brainer. Oh, okay, if I send you to Dr. X, who really didn't receive the type of training for this very rare liver cancer, or not even that rare liver cancer, a liver diagnosis, but a diagnosis that requires the right technical skills, the right hospital support, you know, the right OR support, et cetera. I get it. If I get someone there that at the end of it, my costs are going to be lower than sending them to someone that, you know, hasn't had the right training or doesn't have the right hospital or OR support, that the cost of those complications are going to be astronomical. Or pathology is another, I think, underappreciated aspect. Absolutely. Yep. (laughs) So I've often heard it said, I'm thinking of a point and then the, the counterpoint. So straighten me out here, Suzanne. You know, on one hand, you definitely hear like, for example, Walmart has a whole initiative right now where nobody gets back surgery, for example, and nobody gets cancer care without going to one of their center of excellences. Anytime there's a certain diagnosis that is rendered at a community level before anything proceeds, Walmart pays all expenses paid for that employee to go to one of their select bunch of center of excellence in order for the diagnosis to get the second opinion and the diagnosis and the treatment plan to be confirmed. On the other hand, I talk to certain insurance executives who say we really want to make it burdensome and difficult for a patient to go to, you know, for example, an NCI designated academic medical center because it's so much more expensive. The cost of those centers are so much more expensive. We want to keep patients within the community setting. How do you connect the dots on those differing viewpoints or is there a dot to be connected? Yeah, I think that the inherent flaw to the logic on both sides there is that they're looking at this too globally. And again, if you come back to the condition level, it makes things a little bit simpler. So the Walmart side of the house, it says, okay, blanket statement, anybody with cancer or what was the other um, condition you mentioned? Yeah, back surgery. We're going to send you here because we know if you go to the wrong physician, we're aware that you know 50 to 60% of these cases shouldn't happen. But what they really want to say, or what they really should say is where, regardless if they're centers of excellence or not, are the physicians who these types of conditions are their area of clinical focus, and they've demonstrated high quality in that area of clinical focus. 
and let's leverage that network. Let's find them in the area where these people live so that we're not incurring those travel costs. And that's what we do at Armada Health. We say, look, we're going to get so granular. I don't care if you're an oncologist. I want to know what are you good at? What do you love? What are you passionate about, oncologists? What types of cancer? And that way, you know, we'll know across the country where these doctors are and what they're doing. So the COE model, Centers of Excellence model, I understand the concept of it, but it's also operating on a big assumption that when you send them there, you're, you're still sending them to the right doctor for that condition. And again, I go back to my point that doctors are humans and just because they're under the roof of a center of excellence doesn't necessarily mean they're the right one. Now, on the flip side, oftentimes you will find at these academic centers and centers of excellence the right doctor for the right condition. You know, you go back to your rare liver cancer. We actually had a real case like that at Armada Health where, you know, we always do our best to try to find the best physician for the member locally and within their insurance network, but sometimes it doesn't pan out that way. You know, sometimes the condition is so rare or so complicated that the recommendations are made for physicians that are practicing at more costly academic centers or centers of excellence. So again, I think if we could get a little bit smarter about the network of the physicians out there and what they're good at, then you start looking at it that way versus starting you know, too high up at just, well, where are the different centers of excellence? And the last point I want to make about the centers of excellence is I worry a little bit about their brand dilution and their outcomes as you see more and more of these mergers and more and more of these affiliations. And you see the centers of excellence names getting slapped up on these, you know, different buildings and you just lose the quality control with that kind of model. I definitely see the point that you're making there. You know, I just had an uncle who was diagnosed with or not diagnosed, as the case may be, with brain cancer. And he went to exactly like you're saying, one of these facilities, which was not the center of excellence, but they had slapped their name on a community facility. I mean, it was appalling the care that he received, to be perfectly frank. And if that's a representation of the center of excellence, then there's obviously issues there. So totally hear you. Yeah. And you know what, Stacey, that really just brings up a good point that consumers in healthcare, that's pretty much all they have access to with respect to information, right? Like, oh, center of excellence, that must be good. Oh, I see it here. Let me go. And that's, and that's why I'm so passionate about my work as the chief medical officer at Armada Health is that we have the means to spend all the money we're spending in curating the data about, first of all, even the health system. Like what volumes of patients for different conditions are they seeing? What's their complication rate? What's their, do they have a dedicated center for brain tumors, you know, for joint replacements? What about the physicians? What about their complication rates? What about their volumes? What about the type of OR facilities that they practice in? Like that's the kind of data that the average consumer of healthcare cannot get their hands on. And it's critical in, in being able to decipher it to say, oh, this is where I should go. So that's why I am so passionate about what we're doing for you know the people like your uncle. I want them to have a one-stop shop source of truth for whatever condition, whether it's brain cancer, or acne, you know, that they can go and say, I don't have to worry. I don't have to sweat. That data analysis has been done for me and I can trust it. Because let me ask you, where, where do you go today to get that? Where would you even think to go to get that? 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. I actually wrote an article about this on Medium and it keeps getting longer and longer because it's basically like, well, check this and then go there and you probably won't find the right information. So, you know, like triangulate these 14 sources. And yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Like, let that's what we're doing. You know, we got a team of data scientists, clinicians, physicians and spending a gazillion dollars a year acquiring data like the average consumer can't do it. it it's upsetting. But I want people to know that there is a problem out there that we're not empowering people with the right information to truly make informed choice when it comes to their lives. Like, what? Yeah. And now let's get into that, because I know that this is something that it's been, let's just say I've talked to many individuals who are trying to do quality assessments of physicians. I definitely get the feeling that it's one of those, you know, many have tried and few have succeeded kinds of questions. How is Armada doing this in a way that, you know, bucks the odds, if, if I'm going to put it in those stark terms? Yeah, I think why Armada Health's approach is different is because, first of all, we recognize the hot mess that healthcare data is and have applied resources against that. So, for example, if you look at a lot of the find a doc consumer websites, they're simply taking claims data, cleaning it up a little bit, and then putting out what they believe the data is saying. For example, I still have an active medical license. I have not seen patients in 15 years. If you go to the health grades of the world, you'll see me up there and I look like a practicing physician, but it's because they haven't really cleaned their data without going into too much detail, really use the clinical resources they need to make sense of claims data. Again, claims data is what physicians use to bill. You know, how can I maximize my billing for this experience with this patient? It's not clinical data. It's not outcomes data. So the other reason why Armada Health is different is, yes, we use claims data to look at quality, but going back to that quality framework we discussed in the beginning of this conversation, that's not it. We also want to see care that's patient-centered, super important. So we do a sentiment analysis on the reviews out there. We invest really heavily in acquiring data on physicians, on their publications, their clinical trial involvement, other metrics that represent thought leadership. We use machine learning to take these different data points and relationships and try to understand, well, what can we infer based on all this other data on their area of clinical focus? And hey, based on it looks like the types of patients they see, whether they're comorbidities, these patients, social determinants of health, can we start to tell a picture of, oh, this lady, this female doctor tends to do really well with these types of patients. We recognize they get the complete answer today on quality, that this idea of quality is going to become clearer and clearer over time as machine learning kind of helps us with our clinical insights. It'll become clearer over time as we get more integrated data sets. Right now, everything's so fragment. So this is going to be a, a journey. Again, just going back to this idea that we look at the different domains of what drives quality, such as uh, metrics about the patient, about the physician, about the health system, and we pool all of that together to really try to understand then what is a good quality physician for a member or a patient who needs care in a specific area. 
I was just kind of jotting things down when you were talking. And, and I'm at first, I, I thought it was a two-dimensional grid. And on one side, you had the physician area of focus, you know, and then on the bottom side, you had the patient demographic and satisfaction, if that can even be lumped together. But then you brought up the health system. Okay, so now it's a three-dimensional database. And I'm just having tinkered with this stuff in the past and how fast things get exponential, there's a lot of intersecting vectors here. How are you then deriving? So patient comes in and, you know, maybe you ask a number of questions relative to, you know, like, who are you? And how do you then pair them with a physician? I guess I'm getting lost in the implementation. Think of it this way. First, a lot of what we just discussed about all these different domains and the verticals and the health systems and the patients, you know, a lot of that work was done over the last two years in an R&D sandbox. So we took time and we said, let's look at the patient journey, patient-physician journey from the time someone believes they need a physician, whether it's from a medical or a surgical condition, all the way through when you believe to see the outcomes and you want to know what those outcomes are, what are all those touch points? What is the patient journey? And then from there, we said, oh, that's interesting. Look at all the different domains that impact this, that you have, well, what's the primary care doc doing with respect to diagnosing and referring? And then the specialist and the specialist office. And we said, you know what? Let's build a theoretical ontology of every domain and every data point within that domain we think could impact quality and we thinking, meaning based on what the literature says, what subject matter experts say, and let's just build this ontology. Whether or not we ever can get the data for this or not, let us at least put it up there as our guiding light for where, you know, the holy grail of where we want to go. And then we looked at that and we said, huh, okay, well, let us use this ontology to guide our data procurement strategy and our technology strategy. And one of the biggest things, Stacey, that came out of this was we said, you know, we have to get really smart about our technology platform because we understand right now, we don't know what we don't know. And if we have the right technology and data science strategy, we can start plugging in these different attributes about the physicians, about the health system, and longitudinally let data science in conjunction with our clinical team start generating insights as we go. And so some of what I talked about earlier, it was the strategy that really helped define the today's implementation. And I'll come back to that. From the patient's perspective, we said, look, to get started, when someone comes in, we just need to ask the fewest amount of questions possible to get them in to understand what they need so they can have a seamless experience. And we're going to watch and we're going to see what kind of cases come in, what kind of volumes. And then from there go, okay, now I understand. And we now have another version coming out in the next couple of months that's going to get really smart about based on the condition we are going to start asking condition-specific patient-reported outcome measures and patient-reported experience measures. This will help us start longitudinally getting that outcomes data that just doesn't exist in claims databases. Again, a lot of what we're doing, we, we are going to need time and, and volumes of patients to help us to get smarter and get some of this information that we're, we're talking about. But the thing I'm most proud about of what Armada did was they invested in the technology and the data science that's going to enable us to generate the types of insights that you just aren't going to get, let's say, on those direct-to-consumer websites. 
the bar is effectively probably pretty low. So it's really low. Right. <laughs> and the more we, we partner with payers and other types of customers that have claims data, that have clinical data, like we want to be sharing our data science, our data. We want them to share it. We're hoping that we can get these types of groups to become more collaborative to this whole data environment. You know, the only way we're going to get smarter and get healthier as a nationwide, you know, health entity is that we have to start collaborating a little bit more. Currently, Armada works with or is hired by employers as well as insurance carriers. Armada Health. Yeah, right now we are deployed, you know, either through TPAs and brokers. And that's usually how we get in through the employers. We're, we're not necessarily going employer to employer. We're embedded into health insurance plans. You know, one of our largest swim lanes of business is through association and affinity groups. They see it as such an, a value add to their, their membership. Several hundred thousand lives that we cover come through that channel. And then from them, obviously, you're not going to get claims data from them, I'm assuming. But what you can get is outcomes data, like patient reported outcomes. Exactly. And these are important because these are the outcomes that matter to patients, not the outcomes that matter to somebody else. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really true. Like claims data, if you're a man and have prostate cancer, I'm not going to know if someone was impotent or incontinent after surgery based on claims data, right? It's just not in there. But the only place I can get that is somebody, a patient reports that. And that's really important stuff. Don't you want to know if, if how well this physician does, you know, with those kind of metrics, these patient reporting metrics? If someone is interested in knowing more about Armada Health, where would you direct them for additional info? They can go straight to our website at armadahealth.com. Dr. Suzanne Clough, thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value podcast today. Thank you so much, Stacey. I really enjoyed the conversation. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.